we were blinded by white stars and even disappointed our West Indian parents who loved cricket but knew the man who wore 42. Integration came to our neighborhood the day we opened a new pack of cards and watched the sugar fall from the gum to our fingers. Welcome to The Race to Social Justice, a podcast that explores the myriad racial and social challenges facing the modern world with your hosts, Kiva White and John Kepner. Thank you for being part of the courageous conversation, because when it comes to combating social injustices in America, it is not about being confrontational. It is about being conversational. Hey, hello, John. Hello, Kiva. Long time no see, my friend. Good to see you. Welcome, everyone, to our Race to Social Justice podcast series. I am Kiva White, and I am the black guy. And I'm John Kepner. I'm the white guy. And Kiva and I share a love of the letter K, K for Kiva, K for Kepner, and K for our thirst for knowledge, what we try to impart in these podcasts, something Kiva calls the K factor. That's right, John. And you know, the goal of our podcast is really to continue to promote racial and social equity and justice through honest and even sometimes difficult dialogues, what we are dubbing courageous conversations. And John and I have found over the years that our discussions have really deepened our personal perspectives and understanding of racism and a wide range of other forms of social inequities and our personal responsibility in that regard. And so we like to use this podcast as a platform to invite guests to share their honest experiences and learnings. And we hope these sessions really um, impart to our listeners and even our guests in their own personal development and journeys Uh, And we hope you really are enjoying our podcast. And I'm very excited about our guest tonight or today. Um, And John, who do we have on the show today? Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to tonight uh, with uh, E. Ethelbert Miller. And the story behind this uh, origin of this podcast uh, starts with my son, Tyler, my oldest son, who is a national baseball writer for the New York Times. And he he listens and watches uh, all of our podcasts. And um, on Father's Day, this goes back to Father's Day, I got in the mail a um, a book, and it was inscribed by our guest, E. Ethelbert Miller. And um, I was looking through, I said, well, this is really nice. And he included his, his address and telephone number, all his contact info. And I looked on the back jacket, and this is what I read. Uh, Baseball should create a new position, poet laureate, and give it to E. Ethelbert Miller. In his third collection of baseball poems, a double turning into a trilogy, as he writes, Miller weaves knuckleballs and pickoff throws with universal themes of family, race, relationships, and the issues of our time, like rioting and voting rights. With allusions to Mambo Kett and Giacometti, Henderson and Danicat, How I Found Baseball Behind the Catcher's Mask, the name of of the book of poems, Mm -hmm. will make you laugh, think, and feel a whole new way about baseball and the world around it, uh, quoting my son, Tyler Kepner. So I said, I'm on to something. And so I picked it up right away and I read it. And then I read it again. And uh, what I found as I read it was there were lots of allusions to historical events, not just baseball, historical events, jazz, uh, names that I hadn't never knew about. So I would look them up. 
and they were and, and incidents that I never knew about, some of which we're going to talk about tonight with uh, Ethelbert. And so I, I emailed him right away within a couple of days, and we set up a time to talk. And it, it, we talked a lot of baseball, but we also talked mm -hmm. a lot about um, what we're going to uh, touch on tonight. And, um, you know, it's really difficult to introduce Ethelbert further because he has such a rich career as a scholar and a collector and all sorts of things that you'll, I hope you'll hear about tonight. But um, just to give you a better flavor before we turn it over, uh, uh, I went through the listing of about 25 awards and accolades that he's received over the years. And I know exactly how old he is. He's 40 years <laughs> younger than me. Uh, and they include all sorts of um, recognitions by mayors. He's been, days have been named after him. He's had the mayor's award for literature. He's, he's been honored at the White House. Um, he knows a lot of people, uh, particularly in the black community, the writing community, but the, also the political community. He's just an, um, has had an amazing career. Uh, just Google him and you'll see all the details of it. So I'm delighted you're joining us tonight. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. And as we said before we got on, uh, uh, Ethelbert and I are going to resist the temptation of taking, you know, uh, uh, tangents into baseball because it's something we really, we really hit on. Um, so, welcome. welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so, I guess I'm going to kick it off, and um, uh, let's start with your origin story. Where, Ethelbert, where did you mm -hmm. grow up? Um, tell us about your family and your early childhood. And, and we, we ask uh, our guests uh, to talk about, you know, a lot about the influence of their parents, their environment, and particularly if they've had, if race, when did race first become part of your awareness, mm -hmm. your own personal experiences? It's a lot there. but so right. Well, I, I grew up in the South Bronx, you know, I was born in 1950. I grew up in the South Bronx. I think it's very important to, um, acknowledge that my, my father was born in Panama. Uh, and so my father's born outside the U.S. On my mother's side, um, most of my family comes from Barbados. Um, and um, when you look at the building of the Panama Canal, you notice that many West Indians moved from, you know, the various islands um, to Panama to find work. Once they got to Panama and made money, then they, some of them emigrated to the United States. So it's a very interesting story. I say that because... Um, I would maintain the reason why I don't have a West Indian accent is because my immediate family lived in the Bronx and not Brooklyn. You know, when me and my family would go to Brooklyn, we you know me and my brother says like, what are these people talking about? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we know what they're talking about. But um, I say that because um, I would not realize my background was West Indian until 68 when I came to Howard University. But let me go back and talk about my childhood because it does it, um, deal with issues of race. I went to PS39. And PS39, I think, it grows in importance because it's also this elementary school that Colin Powell went to, you know. And when I looked at that neighborhood, um, you know, you had like Jamaicans, but it was very much a Jewish neighborhood um, to a point that when people heard my mother, you know, she just says, your mother sounds like she's Jewish, you know. But um, that had a lot to do because she worked also in the um, garment industry. But because we were living in the Bronx, we were separated from the West Indian community you know, it was primarily in Brooklyn. Uh, I went to a very, very well integrated um, 
elementary school, you know, my best friends were, were you know, people that were you know, Chinese or from, you know, Europe, you know, so it was very, very um, diverse. And I was very happy there. Um, my girlfriend, Judy Lou, was Chinese. When I, um, when my family moved from Longwood Avenue in the Bronx into the housing project, which would be a step up to the St. Mary's projects, um, there was a moving away from a changing neighborhood. And when I went to junior high school, 120, which is named after Paul Lawrence Dunbar, I walked in there the first day and rushed back home crying and tell my mother I was never going back to school. It was an all black school. Kids were running around, you know, and, you know, I was like, oh, what is this, you know? And then, the, you know, years later, I would realize um, I was a junior high school 129 after Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and no one ever introduced me to Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poetry. Okay, so it isn't until I left New York and would come down to, you know, historic black school, Howard University, that I learned African-American literature, African-American culture. So when I look at my beginnings, um, I was very fortunate to have a working class family. You know, I tell people I never worked as hard as a day uh, as my father who worked in the uh, who's a maintenance man, but then he worked in the post office. Uh, and, you know, my image of my father was not a playing catch, you know, uh, with him. It was, I, I always saw my father sleeping, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I realized that, you know, um, we didn't make any noise because he was sleeping. And that's why we had a roof over our head. You know, my father would come home like in the early morning hours, you know, and, and you know, my mother would be up there fixing something to eat. But, you know, most of the images I have of my father is a man who worked very, very hard and, and slept, you know. And so um, the work ethic, I think, um, I think it's, it's key, to, you know, for me, my development. And then I would say this in terms of just by my family, the, the person that changed the dynamics of my family uh, and affects me politically even today was my brother, Richard, who died, you know, um, in his 40s, uh, which is one of the big loss of my life. Uh, my brother entered the monastery uh, uh, in like around 1962, uh, upstate New York, you know, where they make the monks bread. And um, I, I think they still remember my brother <laughs> because he's like one of the first monks, you know. And, and what happens, I always ask my brother, because I, I interviewed him when he came back out of the monastery, what encouraged him? Because I thought it was just a few Thomas Merton books. But he said the person who had the deepest influence on him going into the monastery was my father. And that never surprised me because I never saw my father as a spiritual being. But this is the thing I always tell people when I'm doing workshops or talks. Where you are in your family, if you're the oldest, middle, or baby, has a lot to do with how you see your parents. Okay? So my brother, being the oldest, saw my father at a certain age and, 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 and experienced a certain things of relationship with him that I didn't have. You know, he was the firstborn. You know, and 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 my brother was brilliant. You know, he was one of the best organists in the city of, uh, of New York. I remember when he came back out of the monastery. You know, he said, "Oh yeah, I play the organ at St. John the Divine Cathedral." No, he was the organist at St. John the Divine Cathedral. But I say that because you know, many times when you leave home, uh, your success is dependent on your moral compass. And I think my parents gave me a very good moral compass, you know, uh, and I'm deeply grateful for it. You know, um, I, I was not the type of person that was going to get caught up in, you know, the wrong crowd, you know, because when we were growing up in the Bronx, you know, we were, if I wasn't playing baseball, you know, I was upstairs, you know, and we would look at the other kids out the window playing, and, you know, and, and, and that whole 
removal of, of us from the, running the streets had a lot to do with my brother, my sister, myself making out of our neighborhood, you know, uh, and, and going and going to 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 a decent high school. Mm. Wow. It's, I mean, it's interesting hearing the, uh, the contrast between, you know, because when people typically hear the Bronx, <laughs> There's some there's some negative or stereotypes associated with that. If you say the South Bronx, you know, I grew I grew up in South Jamaica, Queens. And anytime you put South between any of the, the communities in, in New York City, it's always connotated with some type of negative. Well, you see, this is interesting that you say that because let's go back, okay? Yeah, I'm going 1950. Because the South Bronx that you're talking about has really changed. You know, the South Bronx will give us, you know, uh, hip-hop and things like that, Grandmaster yep. Flash. But what happened... When my father and, and mother, you know, were in the Bronx, that was when if you were in Harlem and you hit the numbers, <laughs> you hit the numbers. He said, oh, dear, we're moving to the Bronx. You know, the Bronx, that's when you went, the Bronx was a step up, buddy. You know, you're moving up, you're moving up. And, and, and in fact, what's funny, because of gentrification today, the South Bronx where I grew up, is called Sobro, <laughs> you know, that's where it is, it's Sobro. Oh. And you can see, but for, you know, Bronx, and this is very important when you talk about issues of race and culture. Right. If you went into the Bronx before the graffiti hit and looked at the train stations, okay, the, the, the many, even the, the buildings were designed by European immigrants, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, so when you look at that, those type of skills, that people have from like the old country. Yeah, this, this is a certain pride. If you were like Italian, you know, you think you're in Florence and some of the, some of the train stations because you saw, you saw a type of architecture, a type of art that was very, very important. You know, um, you might have working class people, they were listening to classical music, you know, right. in terms of, 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 of that. And I, I feel when I go back, I'm really happy for that beginnings because uh, it was very multicultural. You know, um, I didn't realize what was happening, but, you know, I wound up going to Christopher Columbus High School around 1965 because of things like the Watch Riots. And there was a riot in Harlem. And what happens, they, they took a couple of black kids and said, okay, we're going to take these black kids, almost like busing, and, and, and send them to, you know, a good school. Because when you look at New York school system, if you were very smart, like say like Stokely Carmichael, you went to the Bronx High School of Science. If you were talented, you went to like, you know, music and art or someplace like that. Mm-hmm. The other schools that you didn't have to take a test was like Columbus High School, which had like about a 90%, everybody went to college, the city college, especially because it was free. But, everybody, but if you were able to get into those schools, you know, then you made it out. I made reference to Colin Powell coming from elementary school, PS39. Colin Powell went to Marsh High School, which was a very good high school. That's the high school that my brother and sister went. You know, now all these schools would fail and, and, and decline over the years um, in terms of, of, of funding and things of that sort. And then also the, the revenue leaving the city. But back then, they were really good public high schools and they were very much integrated. Okay. Now you got siphoned off based on issues of class, like if, if, if you didn't have a highest, uh, high uh, academic score, they say, well, um, Kiva, uh, I think you should apply the Gompers. <laughs> Some sort of, you know, like the old Booker T. Washington, you will work with your hands for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, you, won't, you won't be going to Archbishop Malloy or any of those. Right, right. So I just say that, you know, in terms of my, my beginnings. Oh, that's all. So it looks, I mean, like education is, a, is, it seems like it's a strong values system that was in, you know, instilled in you at, at, at a very young age. 
And, you know, so picking up from that, I wanted to ask, like, how did you end up at Howard? Like, tell us, tell us a little bit about that journey and how did your experience there really shape your life's work and, and put you on the path that you're Well, keep in mind, I, I was the first person in my family to, to really go off to college. You know, uh, my, my, my parents gave each of us, a, a, you know, one opportunity to dream. You know, my brother wanted to go to monastery. So that, that was it. When he decided to come back out, it was something else. And my sister went into like nursing school. And I was fortunate when I went from um, Paul's Dunbar Junior High School, you know, 120, like I said, they took a couple of few kids back there around 65. I went up to Christopher Columbus High School where I had a cousin, Robert Skinner. I call him Zinky in, in some of my poems. Uh, he was very smart. You know, he was extremely smart. Uh, and so he got in like where I had, he was older than me, but he got into uh, Christopher Columbus High School. And one of his favorite teachers was a black physics teacher who went to Howard. Who went, to, who went to Howard, you know? Uh, I didn't know anything about Howard University, but this guy who taught physics went to Howard. And uh, my son, you know, my, my cousin, you know, was, this was his favorite teacher. So that's how I found out about Howard. <laughs> Just me and my cousin, <laughs> you know, we hanging out. Cause we live in the same building in the Bronx, right? right? He's like, hey man, you know, like, you know, how's your story about school, man? And you could go there and, and there are black women there. <laughs> so I always tell people, I left the South Bronx to go find a wife. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's what I did. Yeah. Because what happened, if you break it down, you find your wife or your partner, how? Being somebody else's wedding, <laughs> you know, yeah. at work. You know, work, yeah. luck, you know, you're in the elevator with somebody, you know, but right. we, you know, me and my cousin, you know, Robert, you know, Dinky, we didn't have it down to a sign. We said, like, we're not talking to any woman unless they're at a museum standing in front of abstract art. <laughs> and then we know that we have a really good, heavy conversation, you know, but I went off the house. I, mean, I didn't know anything. And this gets back to my identity. Like, mm -hmm. I think the first day, you know, I went, I was down there and I went into the cafeteria and somebody put some grits and, and chitlins and stuff. I was like, what is this? Because it was not my it was not something I ate, you know. Right. Um, and then also um when I left New York, right? This is really funny. This, this is like somebody yeah, like, going, this, this yeah, sounds yeah. like a this sounds like a spike Leo. But my no, but my mother, before I even see Howard, my mother takes me aside and says, I'm gonna tell you just one thing. I said, yeah, <laughs> my, what is that? Don't let anybody tell you. It's yours. Now that is a scene like out of Do the Right Thing where, where Mookie is talking to Ajit Davis. Mookie always do the right thing. Right is thing, that yeah. it? Okay, I got it. Right? Yeah, my, yeah, mother got tells, it. my mother tells me, before I even see what you see, pulls me aside and says, don't let anybody tell you it's yours. Now, I would later on tell people, was this some sort of Zen cone or something like that I was supposed to figure out? I haven't even had sex. I don't know what the hell she's talking about. <laughs> but she, and, and I look at this now with her wisdom, she had right. this idea that her little baby, her youngest child, first going off to college, would get down to Howard University and some little girl from Newport News, <laughs> one of her own cities, would snatch her up, and I would never see the West Indies again. <laughs> right. wow. I'd be down there by the Mississippi River. <laughs> oh, my God. That's exactly what she was saying. Oh my gosh. You're at Howard University. Right. 19... 68. So you're at Howard in 1968. Mm hmm. Four. What was it like there? What did you encounter? And... Oh, yeah. well, keep, keep in mind when we look at 68, 
Okay. Um, 68 is just a key year. You know, you deal with the Tet Offensive, you know, in terms of January. You're dealing with um, the King assassination. You're dealing with, with Robert Kennedy's assassination. For me, this is very important because I was, in, and when I was in high school, most of my friends were progressive. You know, we were hanging out in Greenwich Village and stuff, and we were into like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Simon and Garfunkel, and Bob Dylan, you know. So what happens is that we had an anti-war, you know, uh, mentality, you know, because the Vietnam War was going on. Uh, but one of the things I didn't know until um, I actually got down to Howard, Howard had a really big student protest. You know, when we go back to the 60s, we usually think of Columbia University in Berkeley, but Howard had the most successful uh, uh, student protest. And by successful, I mean no property damage and also all the, the demands were met. Now, one of the demands, okay, and I didn't realize this, you know, when I'm going off to Howard University, before, if I was maybe one year older, two years older, if you were a male and went to Howard University, ROTC was mandatory. Okay, one of the one of the protests that took place in '68 was to end mandatory ROTC. Okay, wow. and then the other thing that was one of the other demands was, um, you know, developing an African American Studies department because even though these are historically black schools, even today, if you look at historically black schools, very few have African American Studies departments. Okay, Howard has one because of the student protest, because what people discovered, you could attend, okay, a historic black school for four years and no one no ever history. teach you with no history. Now, you may have a, a professor who is active, like say the NAACP or something like that. So in between him teaching math equations, he would say, let me tell you about Roy Wilkins or what happened. So you, 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 would, you would get African-American history, but it was like buffet. You know, if, you know, and, and so what happens is that when I arrived on, on Howard's campus, you know, you have the, the, the student protest, you have the black consciousness movement, you know, uh, in terms of 68. So, you know, I, I remember, you know, seeing Stokely Carmichael walk across campus. Okay. You know, I mean, this, this is amazing. For me. I, you know, my, I grew Afro, you know, because that was it. And I always tell people coming out of the South Bronx, coming out of like the PS 39s and the junior high school 120, I was baptized in blackness when I got to the campus. Wow. Okay. You know, and that was a major transformation for me, you know, and then keep in mind, I would stay at this institution for 40 years. So I know I know how university backwards and forwards, you know, in terms of that. And then the other thing I look at, you know, and I'm defining myself now, I'm a person of two centuries. So when I when I when I arrived on Howard's campus, that's one century, that's the 20th century. Right. You know, when I, you know, to now I'm in the 21st century. And so when we look at these institutions, you know, I, I had some problems when I went with to some of these institutions, this gets into the whole thing. I majored in Afro-American studies. Okay. When I just and I went down there, I, my, I first declared myself as a history major because I wanted to learn my history. But then, because this was a new department, I said, "Wow, I want to learn African American study." And to show you what the battle was at Howard University, the dean tells me, "Prominent dean tells me, oh, Alfred, don't, 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 you know, don't major in this. This is just a fad." And and it was pushing me away from my desire and need to learn about my 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 my, my roots. Okay. And keep in mind, I'm, I'm, I want to learn African American history. It would be years later when I would learn about, you know, the, the, you know, the West Indies and, and, and other things like that. But, you know, I just wanted to know what was going on. I'm in the South, you know, and, and I would learn. I said, man, you know, this must be really bad down here because Frederick Douglass ran away from Maryland. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know what I'm saying? So I, I knew, in fact, you know what happened, you know, to my race. And this, this will tell you something about my family and, and, and what I didn't know. For some strange reason, one night, one summer night, my family 
mother, aunt, you know, brothers and sisters, decided to walk across the George Washington Bridge mm. to go to Palisades, <laughs> your amusement park. <laughs> I mean, who, I, I, I don't know where that came from. You know, it's like something like, some of my mother was talking to Harriet Tubman, you know, saying like, oh, this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to walk across the George Washington Bridge into Canada. What are you talking about? You know? And what happened, it made no sense, but this is what I found out. Palisades Amusement Park was integrated very late. Okay, and so what happened, I realized this was something that my family members wanted to go to, but they, they had been denied it, you know, but I, you, you really, that was my sense of, of you know, segregation, because wow. that park was segregated, but that's New Jersey, and see, yeah. when you look at his, New Jersey historically, I think New Jersey, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, that might have been the only northern state that voted against Lincoln, you know, that's, that's the home of Woodrow Wilson, <laughs> basically. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So. Um, when we first talked, mm -hmm. I, my mindset was, I'm going to be talking to a poet. I had read your, the third book of the trilogy that Tyler sent me. And I tried to get you to answer questions about poetry. And you kept talking about <laughs> literary activism. Right. And of course I get that now, but for our listeners, um, Tell us about literary activism, what that means. And I, I have the sense that the seeds of that started more than the seeds. The activism started at Howard University. And yeah, 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 you're absolutely correct. By the yeah, yeah, so talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the two things that I really underscore, and, and I learned this when I was Howard because of the jobs that I had. Um, I focus on, I put a heavy emphasis on documentation, and I put a heavy emphasis on preservation. So if you look at, you know, when I was at Howard University, majoring in Afro-American Studies, the Afro-American Studies Department around 1970 got the first um, video camera, okay? Mm -hmm. So we were the one unit on campus that had that capability. And what we started doing was um, videotaping every speak major speaker that came to Howard. Okay, so you know, you're talking about like, you know, Stokely Carmichael, you're talking about Dick Ray, you're talking about all these people, Ron Karanga. Whenever somebody was coming, our department was contacting, we would, we would uh, take it and, and videotape. This is why it's so funny. Years later, uh, people like Barack and others would realize, like, I've I, I seen you before. Yeah, because I was behind the camera, you know, <laughs> videotaping everybody, you know. And, and, and what happened, I was doing this at the African American Studies Department. In around 1970-71, this is where Howard changes. This is what I call the 1970, the golden era. Howard University, because keep in mind when I came, it was a student protest against Bosworthy, also getting rid of the present neighbor, who many people felt was growing old and out of touch with, with the campus. And so what they did as a student movement, they pushed the old president out, and the new president who came in 1970 was James Cheek. JT was like in his 30s, he had sunglasses on, right? I mean, you know, and he said, brothers and sisters, and he was, I mean, he was cool. But this is what I look back. Billingsley was hired by James Cheek. Billingsley was a major um, African-American sociologist. You know, I interviewed him about several months ago. I mean, his work is extremely radical. I, I keep asking, how did you get this job? 
Okay. And Billingsley, before he came to Howard, was only willing to be like a chance out in California, but he's also linked to a very important institution. And that's the institution of the black world. It's like think tank down in Atlanta. Okay. Many people say, <laughs> jokingly, maybe seriously, that this institute of the black world, which was um, this phenomenal think tank, they were all run out. All those scholars were run out out of Atlanta after King's assassination. Okay, because they were all radical. And what happened, many of them were saying, okay, King has been assassinated. How can we keep the dream alive? Okay, mm -hmm. so many of them at the Institute of the Black World was involved in Black studies, you know, education. Okay, mm -hmm. to the point that people around the world or country were looking, okay, how do we teach Afro-American studies? A lot of that comes out of the Institute of the Black World. Now, Andrew Billis is down there. One of the things that he does when he's hired to be vice president of academic affairs, he almost moves the Institute of Black World to the campus of Howard University. Mm. Okay? And so what happened, he invited all these major individuals, Haki Manabuti, John Killers, Joyce Ladder. He was operating like, okay, I'm going to make this, you know, the Black University. Coming out, but this is going to be a black. Man. If you, if he went somewhere and saw you as a leading scholar, he said, "Okay, I want you to come to Howard University." He was building this up to the point. I always tell it because he's in his nineties now, and I said, "Dr. Billingsley, I remember walking across campus. I love Dr. Billingsley. He was like my father. That's another story. But I was walking across campus one day. This is many years after the nineteen seventies, and I ran into two very prominent." Um, Howard professors, you know, they must have been in their 70s, but they were prominent, right? And they were talking, you know, I knew one of them, hey, how you doing? And then uh, I mentioned, I mentioned Billingsley's name to them. I still remember the woman saying, Billingsley, he's the one that brought that black stuff here. <laughs> and this is why very few historical black colleges have Afro-American studies department because most of them are legal institutions and black students radicalize, okay? Try to change these schools. Now, this is why Howard, because it's much closer to Philly in New York, oh, those are radicals from coming out of there. When you know all the kind of the, the, the AM, AM, you know, schools, right? They from like Miami, Mississippi, Louisiana, you, you know, all you have to do is look at Harvey. I think he might be still president of Hampton. Look at the Hampton handbook and it shows you what would never be passed at Howard University. They say things like you can't have any dreadlocks, no do-rags. <laughs> That's what you are doing if you go to Hampton. Okay? Wow. You could never get that past students at Howard University. No cornrows. Get out of here. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, but what happens is that because of Howard being in the nation's capital, it attracts a certain type of radical student. And these are the type of people I encountered when I when I when I uh, arrived at Howard University, and I just mentioned this. I was 17 years old when I arrived at Howard. When I graduated from high school early, from Christopher Columbus High School, I took a job in Greenwich Village at a place called Bookazine that distributed books to all the bookstores in New York. But they also distributed books to a bookstore in Washington D.C., a bookstore called Drum and Spear Books. And so these young guys, a little, a little young, but they were older than me. They were like big brothers. They would come up from Washington, D.C. and get their books to take for the bookstore. And when they found out that I was coming to Howard University, they said, oh, wait, man, you can come to Howard, look us up. Years later, I would realize and discover that these individuals who was like, looked me up were key members of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, 
Charlie Cobb and Cortland Cox, okay? Mm -hmm. These are the people that, you know, really, you know, I looked up to. And when I came down to Washington, you know, after I left Snorkoff Howard campus, I went to the Drummond's Bear Bookstore and that opened up a whole nother door because they were, they were very, very active. But you did become a poet. I did become a poet. And what happens yeah. is that I joked about, you know, going off to find a wife. And so <laughs> I did find a wife. I mean, Michelle Calhoun, bless her little heart. And, and this introduced Michelle changed my little life. First of all, she's just gorgeous. She was like the, she, I mean, she was, she was gorgeous. In fact, let me tell you this story. This is very important. You know, you get away. And because of my brother in the, in, the, in, the, in the spiritual sense, the monastery and everything, when I get down to Howard, I get caught up with the Muslims. I said, I'm going to take my shahada, I'm become a Muslim, you know what I mean? Because you know, my brother was to this, you know, it's a spiritual thing. And, you know, and, but I'm into Islam in terms of Sufism, the mysticism. That, that's what is getting me. But this is where the woman I would marry, she's just a co-head. She saved my life. So I got girlfriend, you know, they're good. So, you know, so I invited Mickey to the mosque. <laughs> wow. Now, Mickey, Mickey was voluptuous, but Mickey was, you know, she was held in doubt, right? We, I brought her down to the mosque, got in the mosque, and the brother said, uh, uh, sister, uh, uh, you're going to have to cover up. <laughs> Mickey from Chicago did one of these. I can still see. You brought so special, she didn't be looking at my breasts. <laughs> he did this a journal truth, ain't I a woman? <laughs> the brother took me upstairs to the mosque, had me read some stories out of the Quran. Like, where did you get that woman? <laughs> but I'm glad she did that because she opened my eyes. I don't want to be around these people. You know, you go to their homes and they have a they have a prayer rug in the Quran. There's no life to look magazine that I grew up with. And so what happened? She saved me. But then, you know, as I find out about her, cousin was Smokey Robinson. Her father is Eddie Calhoun, the bass player that played with Earl Gardner. So she came out of a music thing. I'm just my little Simon and Garfunkel. So she changed my life. But then mm. my poems, my first poems are for her. My first poems are love poems, okay? And then she was writing poems, okay? So that's that's how that started, you know? We were writing poems back and forth to each other. Uh, and so all, all my early poems that, that she had, they were love poems. But, you know, that was very, very important. And, and then, because she was from Chicago, and, 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 you know, she's a freshman, she's one great below mine, you know, in terms of you. She said, oh, there's a guy here that you need to meet. That would be Don L. Lee. Who she knew, but that was the person that she knew from Chicago. And so what happened, I was even in Don Lee's class, but I sat in because she, you know, and that's how I met him. And, and what happened, that changed my life because Don Lee is key, like a Mary Barack for the Black Arts Movement. And so all of a sudden, I'd hang out in his office. He would be reading my first poems, giving me feedback. And then, you know, he was hired by Dr. Billingsley. You see, and so oh. what happens is that Don Lee, John, all these people that had been invited to Howard become part of what Billingsley creates, which is the Institute for the Black World. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's the Institute for Arts and Humanities at Howard, and and in there um, was a documentation unit, and one of my mentors, Stephen Henderson, became the director. So what he decided to say, hey, you've been videotaping this. Let's make that. Let's institutionalize that. So my whole idea of documentation comes from that, from that period. And then what happens, I decided when I, before I graduated, I would listen to the great professors like Sterling Brown and Arthur Davis. 
and they would tell anecdotes and stuff. And I said, well, it's not that they're really brilliant. It's just that they lived through a very important period of time. You know, and I said, oh, you know, I was just talking to Langston Hughes the other day. You know, they would tell you those type of stories. So I realized, I said, well, I'm living through a very important period in time. And then, just like we see today, I decided to do something because I was influenced by somebody that I said, man, I'm going to do that. That was J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> when he was sharing the black, the black Power Movement and stuff like that, I said, I'm going to keep files on people. And I started keeping files on every writer that I met. Okay, so what happens is the manuscript, whatever, you know, I could have my hands on. And so what happened, that, uh, that's part of, you see, my preservation. And that's why my uh, archives at that, the Gelman Library at George Washington University is, is huge. Because it's not just me. I was keeping files on everybody, you know. And th there was people who lost their work, who I gave copies back because I had been saving their manuscript. You know, a lot of writers, you look up, you know, they have a fire in their apartment. They lose their original manuscript. Read a dove had a very terrible fire down in Charlottesville. You know, lightning, I think, struck the house and stuff. And what I did, because I had been saving, she had, I had been getting all her family, like a family newsletter that she had done, with, you know. And I said, well, you know, you probably want the original of these, you know, so I could turn that back over, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you named the people, Elizabeth Alexander. I mean, I, these are people that when they started out, I've got their first manuscript, you know. And that's where you can really have a manuscript where you can see the markings, like, like Ezra Pound, you know, you know, correcting somebody. And those are very proactive documents. And that's where I got into the whole thing as a literary activist. Preservation and documentation are key. Well, because... So I'm glad. I'm so glad you explained. You know, explained that term because when I when I when I first read it, I th I thought about the just term activism and right. in general in terms of social justice and your writing. So I I, I and I know your writing has some social justice context to it, but I'm glad you talked about the whole preservation and documentation of history because sure. I think that's very important in terms of right. making sure that the narrative, particularly for for Black folks. Sure. And African Americans is is preserved and told uh, sure. in the manner in such in which it took place because mm -hmm. sometimes you know narratives can be twisted and turned and right. and it's great that you have the historical sure. context and, and then the thing I would have to say you know you know uh, you have to break my life down into chapters that's Howard University you know even though I I, I was there at, at Howard for all the my my community involvement changes my life in the seventies because now I'm I'm, I'm living. I'm off campus, I'm in Alice Morgan, okay? So now I'm meeting people from Nicaragua and El Salvador and Chile. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is I'm organizing poetry programs and I wanna organizing events at the Institute for Policy uh, Studies. And that's where, you know, my other mentor would be Marcus Raskin, you know, who was a founder with Dick Barnett of the Institute for Policy Studies, which is this progressive think tank. You know, we see his son today, Jamie Raskin, you know, because mm -hmm. he's a congressman. But what happens is that Mark Raskin was my mentor and that pulled me in to hanging out around IPS and then fast forward I would become the board chair <laughs> of IPS and for many years and, and I one thing I hold in high regards is that Mark Rasmus before he passed just pulled me in his office and said you've been the best chair that we've ever had here you know and, and what happens is that people don't realize that yeah that's a that's a major influence in terms of, of my contribution to progressive thinking you know, um, you know, the people that come through that I'm very close friends with is Katrina Vanderwilpel in terms of the, the Nation magazine. You know, we had people on our board, Danny Glover, Harry Belafani. So, you know, that's really, you know, the connection. I mean, you sit next to Harry Belafani, you might as well be sitting next to Paul Robeson. You know, there's a, there's, there's, there's yeah. a history that's there. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, and and bringing things to current activism, mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming that you're, um, you have a TV show and you have a radio show. I listened to a clip of one of the radio shows. Is a is a um, current expression of your activism. You want to talk well, a little bit about what you do? Well, what, what I, I think you? I think when you say that, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, John, because one of the things that I didn't mention before um, I left the Bronx, and I said probably this gets back to my cousin Dinky Robert. Um, we were into Marsha McLuhan. You know, so when I when I came down to Howard, I had like understanding the meeting, I had like you know, Black Power by Charles Hamilton and Sylvia Carmichael. But I was in I was in McLuhan, you know. And one of the things I realized is just being an actor, I needed to control every aspect of media. I had to, I could I had to control print, radio, television. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that, you know, um, if you look at I think I have a very strong presence, you know, in terms of, of all forms. You know, um, you know, print, you know, and for many years, I mean I edited God, for like what 15 years, I edited the oldest poetry magazine in the country, Poet Law Magazine, which nobody realized I was black guy in this magazine for like 15 years. Nobody knew, you know. Uh, or the fact that what happened is um, I've had these chapters in my life, you know, and 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 you know, IPS, you know, is very, very important. But you know, uh, it's a thing where you know I try to bring it all together, but the medium, the TV, and I try to use these type of things when I do a radio show. You know, I was doing one, to, you know, before we started talking, you know, it's script. I'm, I'm because I'm creating documents. I want to create a show that a scholar is going to go back. OK, and, and use. OK, and I know I'm doing a good job because whenever you hear my guests say, oh, that's I never thought about that. And then I know I'm doing a good job. OK, mm -hmm. and sometimes what happens is it means I've got to look at other interviews that people have done and I'm going to say, OK, this question was never asked. I'll give you an example. Uh, I interviewed I interviewed W D Muhammad. <laughs> w D Muhammad, okay, you know, now, you know W D Muhammad was extremely close to Malcolm X. That when Malcolm was put out of the nation of Islam, W D Muhammad didn't follow him, right? Uh, when Malcolm makes his Hodge, he writes letters back. So now I'm interviewing. I'm in, I'm in my office with W D Muhammad, and I asked him a question. I said, "Could could I, I ask you a question?" I said, um, "When Malcolm says in the letter, um, you know." Did you write back? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, and he said, he said that, right? And then I said this, and this is why this interview is very important. I said, you know, I hear all this stuff. I mean, this that, you know, you left, you, you know, like excommunicated out of the nation of Islam and stuff like that. But I don't believe that because Elijah Muhammad was your father. I just, I just can't believe that you had nothing to do with Nation Islam. And he got a little smile. He said, yeah, you know, um, sometimes I'll be somewhere and, and, and when the brothers say, I'm daddy said to come on home. <laughs> so, that interview shows you that something that we think was so strict is was not, okay? Mm -hmm. And this is where there's another story, you know? Like, for example, if I'm not mistaken, you know, when Malcolm X finds out that Elijah Muhammad is having these relations with these, these young girls in the mosque, okay? And that, that has a lot to do where he feels like, I look at this guy, it seems as if the stars of moon is fair because he looked up to Elijah Muhammad such such a way. But the other thing that happens is that when Malcolm X announced that they announced in the, I think the mosque in Detroit that Malcolm X is getting married, this young woman just went off because she wanted she was in love with Malcolm X. Some people say that's the same woman that Elijah Muhammad, you know, was involved with. So when 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 Malcolm found that out, it was even much more personal. I never I, I never could confirm that, but this is what I try to do as 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 a, as an activist and, and documentation. I want to know the story behind the story. 
Okay. I want to know the story behind the story. Maybe, maybe that, maybe that's not true. Just let me bring it up today. Okay. It's like, okay, Donald Trump, you got boxes. Okay. Did you pack them? <laughs> you know, I mean, this question you would just ask. Okay. You know, like, you know, what's in the safe? You remember when they went into the inquiry office and, and took a safe out of the inquirer? You know, now I, you know, now I assume in that safe out of the inquirer was what was information behind one of the headlines. Remember the headline? And we had Jay Love the same stand where Hillary Clinton was seeing the little alien guy. <laughs> you remember? <laughs> Hillary Clinton was in love with the little alien boy. And Ooh. what happened on one of Jay Leno, he pulled that little thing and says, is it true? And she says, yes. But that's what's in the inquirer saying. What's that among This is, you know, I say that in a joking way. Mm-hmm. That if you ask somebody a question that has not been asked or sometimes the most obvious question, if you're doing documentation, okay, then that's going to be key. Now, the other thing, you can do all the interviews, okay? People lie in the interviews. Yeah, I was gonna see. I was gonna say. I mean, I think documentation is 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 critical in terms of preserving history. Right. But if you're documenting false, uh, false, of, you know, ingenuineness right. on a lack of authenticity and the truth, then then that's how the narrative uh, or, or the false narrative can also be preserved. So there's right. very, I was gonna ask you, like, how do you how do you decipher from? Well, so, well, well, well some of it is the same way, for example, you know, if we're on a jury, right, we just can't look at somebody's cell phone. We've got to ask a whole lot of things. Just like when, when, when Rodney King, you know, and that was when the guy just had a camera, okay? Right. Well, yeah, we bring that in, but somebody has to say, what was happening before you turned the camera on? Mm-hmm. You see, there's a whole bunch of this. That's just part of it. The fact that you that's you got good, a yeah. body camera, that's that's not everything. Everything else is, in, and it's just intent. Correct. You see, that, you see and, and that's why, you know, um, it's, it's very hard to prove that in a court. But when you're documenting stuff, you know, in terms of like, you want to make sure if you have a particular period, you want to make sure that the person that you're talking to is telling you the full story or they're not embarrassing that. You know, I love C.L.R. James. He was a leading Pan-African intellectual. But C.L.R. would do be this. He was like, yes. And I told Martin that he had to go back to Montgomery. <laughs> Okay, so he was just gonna hang out, play pool until he talked to you, and then he just say, "Oh, I'll lead the civil rights movement." <laughs> but what happened? But if Mr. C.R. James, it sounds as if he's responsible mm. for Martin Luther King, you know, going back and leaving. You never know. So, so oh, Ethelbert, um, three words: mm-hmm. uh, race, racism, discrimination, oppression. Have you experienced any of those three? And tell us, you know, give us a little, uh, you know, thoughts of personal experiences. I think the racism goes back. I, I think, um, you know, I, I saw this through maybe my, my mother and father's eyes. You know, I, I saw this back in the days when, and I've written this in some of my poems, uh, where um, your mother would go to buy something and the clerk wouldn't want to put, wouldn't want to touch your hand, would not want to put the money in the coin, you know, your coins and stuff, you know, it's small things like that, that, that you sort of say, okay, why is that? My mother and father used to whisper a lot, you know, like they, they were, they, they were sort of like, you know, not wanting to be seen or, or, or heard. And, and I think when I read, you know, because my people's African-American studies, when, when I see the, the damage that racism caused in terms of the, the, the psyche, 
Okay. Uh, I, I, I have a better sense of that. You know, to me, I link, you know, racism sometimes to, to um, depression. You know, people who are overlooked and, and not getting the job that they, they know they were supposed to get. You know, and this is why I go back then. I think Jackie Robinson died young because, you know, what happened? He had a temper and he, he had to keep that in. And so, you know, I, I saw my, my mother and father, they didn't want to disturb anything. You know, somebody come to the house, my mother looked through the peephole. I said, my ask them, they got the wrong door. Well, just ask them, you know, but you know, she was, she was afraid, you know, and, and, you know, when I think about it, these are people who could fail that, you know, my father would lose his job, you know, and, and we would get evicted. So, you know, I, I learned about that. You know, I think that coming to Howard, you know, moved me from out of the, the, um, the, the big city, so to speak, you know, because New York can be, you know, New York is, is, is like ours at times, you know, and, and um, you know, when I left New York, it was the first time uh, I'm really leaving anywhere. I didn't go off the camp or anything. So when that train stopped in Aberdeen, it was like, what is this, you know, uh, and so that was a wake up thing. I think I saw the discrimination more when I began to move around. Um, Washington, D.C., but I think that's when I became to really deal, at least with my positions and stuff, more so in sense of class. You know, there were, there were places in, in Washington, D.C. where, you know, because of my work, student, I was the only black person in the room, and, 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 I, and I saw, or on boards and stuff, you realize how you're dealing with discrimination and things of that sort in the workplace. Now, I think, for example, the term oppression is when you begin to have a more global outlook and, and, and understand the bigger picture of why you are oppressed. You understand economics, you understand, you know, psychology, you, know, you understand all those things. Uh, and, and then you have to say, okay, how are you going to combat it? So for me, you know, the two things that shaped me, and this is pretty much when I leave Howard, um, I'm, I'm influenced, and, and also I guess my brother's planted some of the seeds. You know, I, I become very much involved in terms of liberation theology. You know, I've been very much in concern with like the beloved community. Those are things that became very much part of my vocabulary. So, you know, when you talk about me being an activist, you know, usually what happens, I'm, I'm, I'm raising that up, you know, that those points, mm -hmm. um, because, um, they were very, very important to me. And I feel even today, when I look at what's happening with the indigenous people, you know, throughout this hemisphere, you know, they're on the move, you know, and it's around land reform, you know, and, you know, one of the things I take very much pride in is, is you know, the poem that I wrote in memory and honor of Oscar Romero, you know, um, and my friend Richie Clark setting that to music, you know, and so I, I, I have that. Uh, I also, because of my age, I'm able to see the failure of revolutions firsthand, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I was in Nicaragua dancing with Rosario or hanging out with Daniel Tager and people like that, you know, I, I mean, I, I saw these people come to power, you know, uh, and, and actually, you know, went down to Nicaragua, you know, um, and then to see where they are today, you know, this sort of like betrayal, you realize, you know, that that's it, you know, or, you know, I'm just looking at Salman Rushdie being attacked years later from you know, when we were, you know, trying to protect Salman Rushdie, that these things are long-term. And if you are an activist or you are committed to a certain thing, it's not just for your life, but hopefully you are still in your children and you realize that. And we see the same. Things that we thought, if they, for like a woman, oh, oh yeah, no, Roe versus what? Okay, this, you, you still have to battle for that. You have to vote in November. You have to do it. So those are the lessons that you know I try to look at. So when you have, talk about these terms, racism and 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 discrimination and oppression, you know I look at them as as terms that okay, 
are they how rigid are they how do how do they morph into something else okay mm-hmm. you know like i i, I always tell people okay what happened when the when the robot said hey nigger <laughs> i mean i mean what's gonna happen? i mean am i gonna blame them a programmer you know right, right. <laughs> Right. You know, especially the community like saying, like, hey man, you know, we think for ourselves now. <laughs> you, right. know? you know. Well, wow. um I I want to change gears but not change gears a little bit. Um, because the um the trigger to my getting in touch with you was our common love of baseball. And I'm just fascinated by by the way you have used baseball in your poetry. And um I asked you before we got on John Fogarty's center field. There's a line in there about a, a brown-eyed, handsome man. Around the third and headed for home. It's a brown-eyed, handsome man. Anyone can understand the way I feel. When you, when you hear that, who do you think of? And you told a little story. Could you? Yeah, you, yeah, you know, when you think about that. And then we'll, and then I'd like to, I'd like you to read some of your poems. Right. Yeah. You know, what happens is I was looking at that. And that's, uh, uh, you know, Chuck Berry, I think 55, 56 had a song, you know, and that's the title. Uh, and so what happens is that when we go back and look at what happens with Jackie Robinson's uh, impact on American society, there are songs about Jackie Robinson, you know, I mean, you know, I think there's one with uh, Tom Basie's band, you know, so what happened, Jackie Robinson, you know, uh, affected, you know, popular culture. And so to see him wind up in, in terms of song lyrics and things of that sort, you know, uh, is very, very important. So, you know, when we see today, you know, retiring his number, yeah, well, he had that impact throughout our entire society. And I think today, you know, when we look at how um, uh, instance in our, in, 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 in our public sphere moves into the arts and culture, moves into song lyrics, then we can begin to see that, you know, Jackie Robinson, that, that somebody could say, you know, was key to the civil rights movement, he would have that long-term effect and, and people like, uh, uh, you know, Chuck Berry and others. And then this is how music is, you know, a black musician, especially in the fifties, you know, I think would compose a song. And if you're not like Nat King Cole, you know, hold on to Mona Lisa, somebody else would think would take your song, you know, uh, or, or- Very or, common, or, very, very, very common. common. Right, right. Steal, and musicians steal from other musicians. Sure. Oh, right. They build on each other. Yeah. The other. And, 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 and some musicians are very honest in terms of where they guys. So like for, when you when you listen to, you know, you know, the Beatles, you know, they very much say, OK, we're influenced by Little Richard, you know, and they acknowledge that, you know, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. You know, I think I think the British musicians acknowledge it more so than here in the United States. I think you're right. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Um, well, um, so um, the 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 book, everybody, that. He sent me, for those of you that can see this, is how I found love behind the catcher's mask. And so what is that? What's that title? Where's that title come from? Well, you know what happens. uh, And you said something, John, that um, was very perceptive in terms of you saying this is not just about baseball, but it's about history and things of that sort. That's what I really was doing in terms of the, you know, the trilogy. You know, this book, How I Found Love Behind the Catcher's Mask, has more historical poems. Okay, they have more poems about specific baseball players. When I look at how I've, uh, if God invented baseball, that first book, a lot of the poems about childhood and growing up, and that, that's where that is. But I said, okay, if this is going to be a trilogy. I want to make sure I, I bring more 
baseball history into it. And, you know, even though the title poem is How I Found Love Behind the Catcher's Mask, the whole idea of what I'm talking about with this Catcher's Mask, which can go a certain direction, is in the first poem, Moon, Moon, Moon Indigo, which is from Duke Ellington's thought. And the first line is, how many times has this Catcher's Mask been knocked off my head? Now, even you have to know baseball, you got to know if you're in love. <laughs> what happens is that the catcher is the only one who has a mask on, okay? And what happens, you can see, you know, I say, how many times has this catcher's mask been knocked off my head? All those concussions of love, okay? What usually happens is that, you know, uh, many of us go into relationship and we're not protected or we fall in love all the time. And that's where we come up with the blues, okay? And so what happens is that when you look at this poem, um, how I found love behind the catcher's mask, that poem actually, when you get to the end, talks about self-love. Okay, you know, you you know, you can have all this to see. You know, women can be throwing you, but yeah, you know, bouncing off you. But at the same time, you need to love yourself. Mm. You see? And, and I'll read the poem. I'm telling you, so you I can, would love you, to hear it. You 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 can see how how this how this how this works because um, you know, usually what happens, someone will say, oh, that's the title poem, but it's just, it's you can see in the first poem I'm alluding to it. How I found love behind the catcher's mask. All my life I've caught hell. I never wanted to be a catcher. When meeting a woman, I never know what signs to put down. I never have enough protection. Once a girlfriend told me she was pregnant. She lied, but I didn't know it. A man can only see so much. I live a life of blueness. Behind my mask, a Buddha smile of suffering. Before dying, it's important to play catch yourself. You don't have to wait for a woman to throw love at you. Okay. And I have an earlier poem in which I talk about, you know, uh, a love is the best curve a woman can throw, you know, what happened. Mm. That, that I tell people that you think you're in love, you know, like a fastball comes in, and, and John, you're still always talking about fastballs and stuff like that, pictures. What happened, the fastball comes in, you know, that's like the date and stuff like that. He's like, oh, this is mm. great, I'm in love, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, you go out again, the ball comes straight, but then it dips. And you say like, oh, and I tell people that little dip, that's where the blues comes in. <laughs> that little argument, like, yeah, my woman left me. Well, like yeah. they say, but, uh, blues ain't nothing but a good woman on your mind. <laughs> you know, that's what the blues is. <laughs> or, you find, or you find out that the, the, the money management uh, uh, skills is not the greatest and you right. find yourself in some serious trouble. Sure, right. Wow. So that's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what I did. And then, you know, what happened in, this, in the production um, you saw on the cover of my, my first book, um, I have Satchel Page. okay? So what happens when I was dealing with Loving How to Catch This Mask, um, I wanted to have Josh Gibson. Um, but what happens, and this gets into the thing when you're dealing with a small publishing company, mm -hmm. the cost of these photo reproductions is just yeah, too you much. You have to pay for them yourself. You have yeah. to pay for yourself, yeah. right. So what happened, so then I went through and, and I looked at other catches and, you know, I have a poem, like I wasn't really not an Elson Howard fan, but then I, 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 I said, okay, Johnny Roseboro, you know, let me use Johnny Roseboro. And I, and I found the picture of him. And I think in this sense, the book elevates him back into discussion, you know, other than just being hit upside the head by, by Warren Marshall with a bat, you know, I mean, he was a very right, good catcher, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, and I, and I try to do that, you know, with, with all the covers, um, this one, the second one, I remember when your wife has Tommy John surgery, 
course, what happens is that I try to have covers that are interesting, you know, and somebody will say, well, what's Tommy John surgery? Okay, so you have to explain that. But then if you do know Tommy John surgery, you say, well, why would my wife have Tommy John surgery? And, and you know what happens is that you think, you see many relationships that like, like, like they've been blown out, like, like, like your arm, you know, you know, it's just like, it's just not working anymore. And so what happens is that, you know, you try something like maybe, you know, if, if, if I could start it over again, if I could take a, you know, some sort of, you know, vein or whatever from, you know, artery from my leg and put it on my arm and straighten my arm again, I have a second chance. And you know, when you look at Tommy John, Tommy John became even better after Tommy John surgery. Yeah. Wow. So there's and a I, message, there's the, a message there. Right. There's a message the mask, there. Uh, the mask reminded me of, you mentioned Elston Howard. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, I think the only black player on the Yankees, maybe. But if he was wearing a mask, you couldn't, if you looked at, at him, you couldn't see he was black. Right. And then, right. And then the other thing, the other thing that, you know, we operate within, not just baseball, but within the tradition of African-American literature, then we're dealing with Dumbo. We're dealing with wearing the mask. Okay. We're dealing with the whole thing in terms of, of what we see and, you know, how we hide things from people. You know, you could say that, okay, even though. Uh, I'm going to talk about Tatis, but you know, just got expelled. But what happened, we could say at any given time, everybody on that field is wearing a mask. And, and what are we saying? Um, some are masking their injury because they're older, they don't want to be taken out for some rookie to take mm -hmm. their place. Okay. Uh, someone might, and, and, and at one time, you, know, you never know who was on steroids. Okay. So there were, there were people were hiding behind yeah, these right, masks. Yeah, hiding things. Yeah. yeah. A yeah. different kind of mask. And then right. And, and so that, that, that I think is, is, is a metaphor that you know you can look at in terms of um dunbar has really given us that that thing when and i think of, when i think of masks and i think of race i think of uh, the kkk yeah that's what i was going i was going i think um for as a man of color um going into certain arenas sometimes i feel like i have to put on a mask in order to either compete or or uh uh to diffuse any stereotypes or any other social stigmas that may be of, of men of color. And, and, and I'm learning as I get older is to be authentically myself and, mm -hmm. and not to do that, but just being transparent. Sometimes it depends. You have to, what's, what's the term? You have to play the game. Sure. But then, yeah. But then the other thing, the same way, sometimes we look, we talk about blues, you know, and, and, and we say, okay, blues is not just, you know, songs of, of, of sorrow, you know, they're also this joyous aspect of blues. When we deal with the mass, okay, you can say, okay, let's look at the mass in terms of carnival in New Orleans. Okay. Let's look at the mass in terms of, of gay balls. You know, I mean, the mass is, 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 is some sense of where it's celebratory you know, in terms of, 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 of oh, yeah. being part of attire. So, you know, we have to look at it, how it's used that way. Or for example, like when we look at African masks, okay? Yeah. We think, we see African masks in museums not realizing these masks are actually functional, yeah. you know, right. used in rituals and stuff and not to yeah. be behind glass. Correct, yeah. So so yeah. I, I, I found your poems to be rich in metaphors, particularly not just baseball metaphors mm -hmm. and, and images and... Um, and then I love the wordplay. So I wonder if you could read a couple of others. Uh, sure. How we have some well, time. Uh, yeah, you you want to read, to read um, baseball I, cards. Baseball cards and, mm -hmm. and Chicago. If we have Chicago. Time, one other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll read baseball cards. Yeah, read baseball cards. Because this takes me back to, to um, um, the South Bronx. Black history was years ahead of us. So when we gathered in the playground, we traded away our baseball cards with the black faces. 
we were blinded by white stars and even disappointed our West Indian parents who loved cricket but knew the man who wore 42. Integration came to our neighborhood the day we opened a new pack of cards and watched the sugar fall from the gum to our fingers. Okay. Now, in there, so some of the things I was talking about, you know, is um, my, my, my parents, you know, from West Indy, they, they knew Jackie Robinson, you know. Yeah, they knew 42. Um, they knew 42. And, and so I, I wanted to say that. Now, this is where um, this other poem, um, Chicago, this is where, you know, I, I started um, really saying, okay, in this third book, I wanted to have more um, history. Now, the catch here is that. I started getting into 1919 because that's the year my mother was born. Cause my oh. mother always, my mother always liked the fact she was born September 19, 1919. She was playing the numbers for all her life. <laughs> you know, you know, it was nine, 19, oh, 19, 19. 19. <laughs> you wow. know? So, so, so it, it started, it starts with that, you know, my, my mother's birth, you know, but then I'm like looking at it and say, well, you know, a lot of other stuff was happening the year my mother was born. Um, Chicago, red summer of 1919 before the Black Sox scandal. White men throwing stones, not balls at black people. Black people at the beach, not wearing socks or shoes. Eugene Williams was not a fan of violence. He was a victim. Drowning like a player caught in a rundown, cheated out of his life. In the alphabet of history, riot comes before scandal. So that's R before S. But the key thing is here, here you have a poem and the poem, just like I was talking about my importance of documenting things, the poem documents the, the, the Red Summer 1990 because this is Eugene Williams. He's actually, he's not just, you know, it's just like, for example, if we take away Emmett Till, George Floyd, and we say, oh, man, God was, was killed. You know, no, you want a name. So that person, memory breathes all the time. And so what happens is that I had to do my research and, and, and I thought that worked well. But, you know, we know that many times when we, in the baseball, we think of the Black Sox game. But then if you were like a military person or something, you're thinking World War One. you're thinking of the, all these riots that took place that year. And then I'm putting in like, like I, I said, well, wow, you know, my mother was, my mother was born here, you know, during this time, mm -hmm. you know, or the same way when you look about how, um, I think we had the whole thing, the influenza, you know, you have all these things taking place. And you say, okay, how did my parents survive? You know, who brought my mother home and put her in a crib? You know, yeah. I mean, how do you know? That's the thing that I think that, you know, with my baseball poems, I try to have a certain sense of richness. Um, sometimes there's a sense of humor, but there is a lot of wordplay, you know, that I, I try to do. And then some of the poems, if you go through all three books, you know, you see that some of them are in different poetic forms, you know, sonnets or haiku. So I really want to make sure that they're. I saw you there. did some haiku, yeah. Yeah. Right. So um, I you, do you know, one of the ironies about this poem, or a mm -hmm. couple of comments about this one, I never heard of this. Mm -hmm. I looked it up and I thought, wow, yeah, okay, that's another another you know massacre race kind of thing. Sure. Mm -hmm. Ironically, we have a podcast previously done um, with Ray Solomon mm -hmm. who talked about the Elaine massacre in eastern Arkansas. He grew up in the Mississippi Delta. And um, he's a legal historian. He told the whole story of that massacre, mm -hmm. September 1919. Mm -hmm. and, but you know, but you know, you just wow. something that, that's very important, and, and you've done this a couple of times in this in our conversation. You're reading poetry the way poetry should be read. You know, many people say, "Oh, poetry is difficult," and this and that. Well, you look it up. You you, you stop. You know, and and, and yeah. I don't know really because every word 
or punctuation or line break, this you have to read that. And that's where I enjoy writing the um these poems because, and you know this, is that when you deal with the baseball player, you better be right. If, if, if the batting average is 243 and then 244, you better get it right, you know? And and I was blessed that my literary assistant, Kirsten Porter, who reads everything, uh, her her father was a sports editor for USA Today. So he caught some spelling errors that I would never have caught because I, you know, <laughs> you know like Ricky Henderson, is it an RK, you know? Yeah, you know, and, and you and you know, you want to if you if you want to sell this in a, to the baseball community, you want to be especially in this era of analytics. You want to be really, really correct that you, you got the name spell. Yeah, yeah. So how about um, looking for Sidney Bechet? Okay, this, okay. This one, this was really one of my favorites for a lot of reasons. But okay, uh, I'll read it and then I, I'll tell you. Read it and then we'll talk yeah. about it. Looking for Sidney Bechet. One didn't have to live in Boston to believe in green monsters. Every housing project had a wall haunting our future. The Bronx was where black people went after they hit the number in Harlem. I had an Ellison Howard baseball card, but didn't know he was black behind his catcher's mask. Howard played for the Yankees and Pumpsy Green played for the Red Sox. I didn't want to be either of them. I was a young skinny kid with a big glove and a kid who never knew much about Boston except the year Bill Mambo kept through a no hitter that was almost a perfect game. I liked the sound of his name because it reminded me of Paris and a French kiss. And maybe one day a woman would think I was lucky or had just hit the number or maybe some French woman might just, just mistake me, might just mistake me for Sidney Bechet. You know, now, I wouldn't know Sidney Bechet at all if it was a John Coltrane. No, no, neither did I, <laughs> but, but you know, I, I looked at him. And, and, but what I loved about this is it starts the green monster in Boston right. ends up in Paris <laughs> and, and the green monster and Pumpsy green. I mean, right. just the, the wordplay was just, I just, I, I, every time I read it, I get Laura. And that's the thing about your poetry. It's so rich. Mm. You can't just read it once. You got to read it twice. And every time I read one of your poems, you know, and, and I, I, I would, you know, if I didn't know the person I'd look at right. the person. And, and then it's not just baseball you use as a metaphor, but it's, it's uh, lots of jazz. I don't know a lot about jazz. You know, what I did, what I did here is that, um, you know, John Coltrane brought back the soprano sax. You know, I mean, uh, Sidney Bechet pretty much right playing clarinet, but he also played soprano sax. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what happened, that's how I got into Sidney Bechet. But, you know, one of the things that happened to me, and this is the whole beauty of, about traveling around, I went, I was at Foxcroft, which is this, very exclusive schools, schools, you know, for foxes, they don't know how to ride their horses and chase the hounds, you know. And what happens is that if, 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 a, if a young woman says her last name, you know, like the good, good year to enter tires. Anyway, I'm signing books. I was, you know, there for a reading. And I was like, well, Mr. Mr. Miller, we don't have his books here, but you know, we'll have our we'll have our nameplates sitting around and Mr. Miller will sign the nameplates and when your book comes in, you can place your nameplate in your book. <laughs> so I'm signing right? And this girl really comes up, the girls comes up and I ask her name. She says, such and such mom bouquet. And I said, What? Wow. <laughs> and I said, I see you lady. Oh, that's my uncle. <laughs> He just wrote that off, and I was like, when I got up and hung up, you know, it's like this the way you connected Mon Bouquet to Paris and everything, Paris, right? And, right, and, and that one hit me also because that that was one of the Tyler loved that name, you know, and <laughs> yeah, so 
That was a good connection. And you know, I, I mean, it's dope because one of the things that people thought was, was an error, but it's but it's it's, it's used for the repetition. Is that um, we come to the end of this poem? Some French woman might just mistake me, might just mistake me for Sidney Bechet. You know, I use that repetition there. You know, mm-hmm. there's this mistake, mistake here for Sidney Bechet. So that's how it's done in terms of a technical sense, the re- use of the repetition to actually create the mistake. Wow. I wonder, I wonder, what, what advice would you give a young poet of today? Like, you know, a lot of our youth, is, you know, is heavily into this, in this, into this art form. What would, what advice would you give them to? Well, it to, gives, it gives, it gives you advice, you know, um, um, you know, like when I was teaching up at Bennington, you know, um, Bennington Writing Seminars in, in Vermont, you know, um, the advice I gave my students there, um, it was advice that I got from the director, my friend Liam Rector, who's no longer he committed suicide, but you know, he was a deep, dear friend of mine. When he was running the program, he told people that young people coming in to be writers, he said, No, we're here to develop men and women of letters. Okay. And I and I hold that. I said, anybody who's writing better be reading. You know, you, you and, and reading out of just outside your comfort level. You know, I, I look at right now, my life is totally changed because I'm writing poems with my good friend Miho Kanas, who's Japanese um, poet and translator oh. scholar. Mm-hmm. And, and Miho, wow. Miho, Miho reads like over 100 books a, 100 books a year. And I think she has a photographic memory, right? You know, and so what happens is that, yeah, you know, we spent like a couple of months ago just reading a number of novels by Chilean authors. You know, I mean, she's always coming up with something. So it challenges me just to read, let alone collaborating when we're sitting down to write. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the poems that we've written together, they are very, very rich in detail and 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 really heavily constructed because we're borrowing lines from Japanese authors that somebody would have to, you know, like Ezra Pound, like borrowing Chinese, you know, it, it has that sort of richness. But at the same time, um, if you enter into collaboration, that's how you grow. Okay, if you start hanging out with musicians and visual artists. So what I would tell people who want to be writers, definitely hang out with the other artists, hang out with the painters, hang out with the with with the 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 the, 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 the musicians. Because now what happens when you sit down and write a poem, you see, you hear, you bring all the senses into it. Uh, and right. that's what's going to be the and then what you want to do as as a as a writer, you want to surprise yourself and surprise others. You know, the same way you say sports, if, if, if you lose the love of the game, you know, that, you, know you always want to have when there's something when you write, say, oh, wow, I did that. You know, so some surprise. And, and, and one of the things that's very important is you have to say, okay, the metaphor and image is key. See, one of the things I, I just like about sometimes spoken word, it's spoken word. But you, you, I can listen to somebody, it's funny, it's sexual, this and that, but there's no image, there's no metaphor. Yeah, yeah. yeah you mm-hmm. know, what, what makes a poem work? Right, right. Yeah. And then the thing that we have to look at is how language changes, okay, and how you can see, uh, and this is, it doesn't even matter about the politics, I tell people. Donald Trump has corrupted our language, okay, but then he's also done some things in which he's been extremely creative, which he borrows, the same way we were talking, you know, about, you know, Chuck Berry. He borrowed from, like, uh, Muhammad Ali, Cassius, when he was Cassius, which was, um, Fabulous Georgia, the, the wrestler, you know, what happened, naming, you know, giving his, his opponents these nicknames and stuff like that. That's why you know 
and he's in a really dangerous spot now because he Garland ain't got a nickname. The <laughs> right. Garland ain't got no, he ain't even Sleepy Joe. No, Garland has no nickname. Okay, that should tell you that this is serious. But the other thing that we have to look at in terms of language, you know, if you say Nixon, you can use Nixon the poem as a metaphor. Okay, will that be the same thing when somebody says Trump? Okay, will it be a metaphor? I do know that when I see a MAGA hat, it's almost like I'm seeing a swastika. Yeah, mm. right. You know? right. Yeah. Yeah, it's the symbolism of it. It's symbolic. symbolic. Yeah, very right. symbolic. Mm -hmm. And that's what writers have to be concerned about. And, and I think that getting back to your question, you know, it's the reading. You, you want to bring that sort of breath into it. You want to be reading, you know, science. You want to be reading archaeology. You want to be reading, you know, about, you know, music. You want to bring all of that so that you're well read. Say, you know, if, if you go to the um, bookstore, you got a lot of people that go to the bookstore, but you go to the bookstore and you just go to your section, okay, and you don't go and say, let me see what's happening in the gardening section, you know, then, then that's, not, that's not it. The same way, for example, you, they tell you, you want to be a smart um, um, consumer in, at, at, the, at the supermarket, you stay on the outside, you don't go in the aisles where the junk food is and, and, the, and, the, and the high sodium, anything in a can is not fresh. So you learn how to stay out. That's how you have to know how to read. You know, there were certain authors, I, I don't read that. You know, I call, I, I call the term called literary uh, uh, race porn. <laughs> I call it race porn. Oh, no, no, put a, put a brown pair bag over there, brother. <laughs> you know, you know it, 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 and, and what happened, and, and I call another one, it, it was, it was um, um, literary pork. It's not good for literary you. Literary pork. Literary <laughs> pork. Oh, you said it's not good for you? It's not don't good for you. Don't digest no, that. You remember the old days, the nation is was saying, brother, you know, brother, but, but come on, two, well, you, you're just 2X. Look, what happens, yeah, stay away from the pork. You say, stay away from the pork. You know, you know, and they would teach you how to eat to live. Because, the, you know, if you look yeah. at, you know, when Michelle Obama was first lady, you know, you, you, she goes out to Mississippi and, and, and obesity and people just, I mean, the diet, the food yeah. might be good, but it's right. not good for you necessarily. For you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's solid. That's solid. Thank you for that. So, so the, uh, if you're gonna write, you need to read wide, basically. Exactly. It's a strong yeah, advice. Right. Awesome. We're near the end of our time, and I, yeah. I'd like to ask you a, a final question mm -hmm. um, that we we often ask, and that is, um, you've got a lot of choices of all the people that you've met, but who would be your role model? <laughs> I love, yeah. Social and racial justice. <laughs> I didn't have to get a question. No, I'm not, no, I'm going to answer because what happened? I don't have any role models because I'm in my I'm an elder now. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm like, you know what happened? You I, I don't have a role model. model. Well, you know what happened? You know what happened? I'm, I'm getting ready. Um, I hold this up as a thing. I'm getting ready this week. This is this is soul culture, black poets, books, and questions that grew me up. Ramika Bingham Richard. This is this she's won a number of awards, but this is for poetry. But she's she was one of my students. She was my student at Bennington. Oh. You know, and, and this book, as you can see, this book here, which and she knows every you know, this book is dedicated to me. You know, the first page I'm in there. You know, oh, she, wow. she 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 wow. says that, you know, I mean, she is I mean, I, this is what I feel. I said, wow, you know, this book is coming out. And then I have another, uh, Tracy Guzio. She's a professor at Blacksburg up in upstate New York. She's an expert on the writer, John Weidman. And Tracy was my student when I taught at UNLV. Oh, you know, so right. when, when I look at some of these individuals, now some people claim me, 
as their um, you know person, like Ta-Nehisi Coates will, will make reference to me. Um, Greg Tate, who just passed, you know, um, mm-hmm. Greg always will say that, you know, he wouldn't have been who he was if it had not been me. But I didn't really, until you get to like a Ramika, they were not my students that I really yeah, taught. Yeah. You know, so what happens now, you know, I want to be an elder, you know, and, and I want to be able to ha- develop that patience. You know, I, I've been giving away a lot of my collections and my records and stuff like that, because I think that's what the elder does. You know, you, they give stuff away to the next generation and you have to, and I tell people, this is how you know the difference between like say a, a mentor and somebody who's just an advisor. Yeah. Mm. The mentor is going to give you a gift. If they're real mentor, they're going to give you a gift, something that might be, they might be sitting in their office, a cane or a hand or something. They don't give that to you because they're going to pass that on to you. And, and you accept it as a, as a responsibility. You know, coming full circle, you know, see me now because I'm going to go out. But one of the things which I always would wear, people see me, I would wear one of my, one of my, my, my son's rings, you know. <laughs> he left all these rings. I said, I'm going to say, man, I said, well, these NCAA rings. I said, yeah, and he said, yeah, dad, well, you, you can have that one because he, the ones he likes is the ones he got for coaching. <laughs> you know, but what well, happened? I, I, yeah, but I got that. Yeah, I'm glad you answered the question that way. You sort of turned it in a, in a, in a, a direction I love because I, I think that we don't, you know, we started with education, mm-hmm. and we're ending the conversation with right. education. That, that that there's nothing better than remembering a teacher who had who impacted mm-hmm. you, and mm-hmm. and and those are thanks for those examples. Yeah, um, I have a um, a teacher, a high school teacher, coach. Mm-hmm. who's now in 96 or so 97 who who taught all the way up into his 90s college mm. you know he became a college teacher and um you know my classmates we still have calls with them wow. you know, in appreciation for for the coaching and the teaching that he did mm-hmm. with us as high school students and and there's right. nothing better than that it helps shape sure. your future so thanks for yeah Anyway, you go back and, and you were talking earlier about, which is that beautiful moment where you go to the Philly games and you have your three sons there. You know, that's that's priceless. Yeah. And speaking of that, and maybe the way, so um, you and I, before we get too much older, we're going to have to go to a game together. Right? And maybe he'll be in Philly and your son can come along with us. He lives right around, he's right around the corner from me. You, so, you have to get into a basketball game, man. There was one Father's Day. Nationals game. Yeah, there, there, there was one Father's Day, man. Him and my daughter took me to a ball game. It was they were sweating. I said, "Okay, we're leaving the fourth inning." They, they, they were not baseball oh. fans. Oh, yeah. Eva, do you wow. have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, I, I'm just, uh, you know, the many mentors I, I have, whether it's through books or films, or people that inspire me and influence me. And I have to tell you, this uh, this session was just. So inspiring. I was very um, moved by uh, your knowledge, your insight, your inspiration, your, your, your humor, you know, just <laughs> learn how to live to, and laugh. I just, yeah. I, I know yeah. I, I could talk to you and I got so much from you. So thank you so much for, oh, thank you for the invitation. a lot of the terms and, sure. and just sharing your, your history and how you use poems really to tell stories. Yeah. Cause I think right. that's what it's really all about. To sure. preserve, and you're saying about preserving and documentation right. of our history, and you're doing that in mm-hmm. a very unique art form through poetry and, and, and the use of the metaphor, the baseball metaphorical. So I really appreciate. Okay, uh, thank you. On tonight. Thank you thank very you much. So much. Okay. All right.
Great. Thanks okay. again. Okay. All right. I'll take care. Right. Take care. All right. All right. Many blessings. Yep. 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 Thank you, everyone, for listening okay. out there. And uh, we, we, we thank you for joining us for another Race to Social Justice podcast. Please subscribe and join us for, again for another courageous conversation here on the Race to Social Justice. Thank you, Ethelbert Miller, for joining us. And everyone have a great day. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. The Race to Social Justice podcast is produced, edited, and mixed at The Dream in Austin, Texas. Visit thedreamrecordingstudio.com for more info.